golden god! An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> Who's weirder, you or me? You just put the law in my hands, and I'm gonna break your heart. Nobody puts baby in the Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. <laughs> Pardon my French. Shit. Well, hi there, and welcome back to Movies for a Life. I'm one of your co-hosts, Michelle Egan. Do you like that? That was good. That was good. I like that a lot. <laughs> I wish I had a good, you know, response to that, but I just don't. Get out of my head. <laughs> And who are you? I, I I am your other co-host, Brian Kuyper. And yeah, today we are obviously talking about Dr. Sleep. We're continuing our discussion of a lot of one of our favorite directors, filmmakers, works, Mike Flanagan, and doing kind of our like episode where we just pick a movie that we've both really loved and we just want to gush about it so we are gushing about dr sleep today and this is one that you especially both of us but you especially have wanted to talk about for a long time yeah you know this is one of my favorite movies of the past few years i actually caught it in the theater i know a lot of people missed it in the theater because I didn't catch it till like a year later. Yeah, it was unfortunately a movie that kind of got lost uh, for whatever reason. It was released right after sort of the Halloween glut of horror films, and but not really like a Thanksgiving weekend or anything like that. So it feels like it just kind of got lost in all of that. But I think people have discovered it since then. And have been like, oh, shit, that is a great movie. I think that has been widely the response. So I'm very pleased to be able to talk about it. And today we are talking about the director's cut of Dr. Sleep. But we will be talking about, I think, at least you think, I don't remember the theatrical cut at all. If I I think that's the first one I saw. Yeah. But I don't remember the differences. I I remember a couple of things. Okay. But I'll do my my best to... uh, to articulate a few of the differences. And I remember reading the the book, Dr. Sleep, uh, around when it came out in 2013, I want to say, something like that. Yeah, it was somewhere in that vicinity. And it's pretty good. But I remember wondering at the time, like, oh, they, they've got to be, there's no way that they're going to not adapt to this because it's like a sequel to The Shining. But I just really wondered how some of this stuff was going to look if someone did it, like how they were going to make this, like the astral projection, you know, and the being inside people's minds. I was it's like in the wrong hands, this could really come out like maybe kind of cheesy and weird. But when Mike Flanagan got his hands on it, like, oh, my God. It was so much better than I I pictured that it could be from reading the book. Yeah, honestly, I thought the book was fine Mm -hmm. when I read it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of The Shining. The Shining is my favorite King book, and it's not even close. It it just has, over the years, uh, spoken to me 
uh, more than some of the others. Uh, as much as I love Stephen King, something about The Shining has brought me back to it multiple times. I think it was the second or third of his that I read. Uh, I was in like fifth or sixth grade <laughs> when I read it. And so reading a book as dense as The Shining at that age, I obviously didn't particularly understand it all. Yeah. Uh, but then I returned to it in college and it was like reading a different book. And then I read it again uh, in my 30s, I think. And it was again, just like, oh, this is, there's just, I never knew what this book was about. And now I read it, having read it again, it feels like another book every time I read it at a different stage of life, yeah. having just different experiences with it. And it's incredible that he wrote this when he was pretty young. And then obviously Dr. Sleep as sort of a response to it, dealing with that, some of the same kinds of themes from a different perspective. Yep. Okay, so we're going to approach this in a different way than we have any of our shows up to this point. I actually put out onto Twitter, hey, you know, we're doing our episode on Dr. Sleep. Does anybody have any questions or comments, thoughts that they'd like us to discuss? And we got some pretty good responses. Yeah. And I wasn't sure how many we'd get, <laughs> uh, but we got several. And I thought, this is at least a good place to start. Uh, so we're going to approach it like this, and then we'll cover other things along the way as well. Because this is like a three-hour movie, so we're obviously not going to do our thing of going plot point by plot point. That would just be uh, a little much. And there's more to get into when you're just talking about overall the characters and the themes than what actually the happens, you know, in the movies. So, and these yeah. are yeah, these are good jumping-off points. So. Which one are we going to start with, Brian? Well, we're going to start with what is clearly the most important question and the one that is the most movies for life question. Yes. Uh, this one comes from our friend David Haddon, and they say, who is hotter, Ewan McGregor or Rebecca Ferguson? <sighs> I mean, we both kind of came to the conclusion that, yes, <laughs> they both <Yes>. are. <laughs> I mean, at first I would have said... Rebecca Ferguson like no question but when I was re-watching it last night I was I was looking more at Ewan and he was uh he was doing it for me he was I was never really into younger Ewan McGregor more baby face but like him middle-aged uh little scruffy he ages he, like a fine yeah, line yeah he was yeah. he was he's pretty good looking so maybe maybe Rebecca yeah. Ferguson a little bit more above him because she's just perfect <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson is gorgeous, but in this movie, she scares the living fuck out of me. <laughs> She's supposed to. <laughs> Good. And so, um, yes, uh, it's it's sort of a hot in a domination kind of way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, but uh, nice. she could take my steam any time. What? Does that, does that work? <laughs> Ooh. You can suck my steam any time. <laughs> I'm recording. Nice. We're recording this after just listening to our <laughs> gun crazy episode, uh, so maybe that's in my mind right now. Nice. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, come on. There's there's a lot of hotness on display in this movie. There is, and you know, I gotta admit, you know, and this isn't usually the way I I swing or look, but hey, Ewan McGregor is nice looking mm -hmm. in this. I gotta say. Very, very attractive guy. And I've always been a fan of Ewan McGregor's work uh, as soon as I sort of knew what it was. I think it was probably uh, train spotting. I didn't say I wasn't a fan of his but, work. 
Yeah. So oh, I know that. But I mean, attractive. <laughs> uh, attractive. Yeah. Though I think I think he's always had a little bit of a wizened face, I, even in something like Trade Spotting. When, okay. When when I saw the Star Wars prequels, I always thought he looked better with the beard. You know, in the second two movies, especially in Episode Three, when he's looking very mature and Alec Guinnessy. You know, I know you're looking at me like I've <laughs> I never seen those. So I was going to ask you the other question is which version of Ewan McGregor? Because he's got three versions in this movie. He's got rock bottom Beardo, which is kind of grungy looking. My wife might like that. She likes grungy. She, she, Viggo Mortensen in Lord of the Rings really does it for her. (laughs) So then there's, then there's totally clean shaven, you know, like the eight years sober, you know, that guy. And then there's sort of the on the road scruffy yeah sort of stubbly Ewan. Scruffy usually does it for me. Yeah. I'm going to say that one. Scruffy? Scruffy. Okay. You know, sounds good to me. Yeah, it's probably what I would vote for too. You know, little little bit of a little bit of stubble. A little bit of five five o'clock shadow. Yeah. I think this comment uh from Patrick Bartlett is actually kind of a nice setup as well. Yeah. And that is uh this is what he I'll read his uh tweet here for verbatim. It's fucking insane to me that this film exists. The book did nothing for me, but Flanagan managed to take the good parts of the book, the stuff from The Shining that Kubrick did use, and even the stuff he didn't, and make something extraordinary out of it. I think that's well put. Yeah. I think that's really well put, because I, um, like I said, I was sort of like, and this dovetails a little bit with uh, something from J.D. Gravitt. Uh, He said, if you read the book, how do you think this is as an adaptation? I think the book is fine. Yeah. I was not moved by the book the way I was by either The Shining or by the movie uh, of Dr. Sleep. So I think it's kind of a minor miracle that Flanagan was able to take, not only make this an adaptation of Dr. Sleep, yes. the book, but make it a viable sequel, not only to King's book, book but also to the Shine- Kubrick's, Kubrick's the Shining. movie. Yeah. It's really quite something and he essentially takes the ending of the book the shining and puts it on the end of dr sleep and but um, mixes it in with uh, some stuff from the shining the movie too that that whole yes. the whole last part in the overlook is just that's what i think that's when i really fell in love with this movie because me too i was like that's fucking genius because if you don't know the ending to the book the Shining, uh, there is no Overlook Hotel. The, the boiler explodes and the hotel is destroyed. So the fact that he like actually goes back into the hotel and like just meets up with all those ghosts and recreates the the shots and scenes from The Shining too, mm-hmm. while also like taking stuff that happened to Jack and have it happen to Danny. To Dan. Yeah. yeah. Or, uh, I was like, this. that's perfect. That's the perfect way to do it. And it, it sends yeah. a really great message about his character, his, his arc. His char- it's a very good arc for him, like, throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and, you know, in the book The Shining, Jack has sort of a momentary redemptive arc where he <laughs> allows, essentially, the uh, Danny and, and Wendy to escape and Halloran, because Halloran also lives, lives in the yes. book, um, which does not happen in the movie, of course, and essentially sacrifices himself for them. 
So, I mean, there, which is what happens at the end of Dr. Sleep. Yep. Danny is possessed by the hotel, just as Jack was, mm-hmm. and has sort of this moment of letting Abra free. And I think that's really, uh, it's kind of, honestly, that, like you said, for me, the whole Overlook sequence is really what made this movie go from good to great for me. It just sort of reconciles all those worlds in a way that I never would have thought possible. And it's very imaginative and it's... But it's logical. It works. Yeah, not it's just because not... it's cool, not to be like nostalgic for The Shining, but it really, mm-hmm. really works with the the characters, the new version of Dan and what he's been going through and him, yeah, reconciling his feelings towards his father and everything. Yeah, yeah it's perfect. <laughs> I don't know how else to yeah, say it. It was, just, know... it was just a really good way to do it. And you said like when you were researching for an article that you wrote that that's what kind of convinced Stephen King to let even let him go back flanagan go back to the overlook for this version yes uh there was a great interview that he did with mick garris on the postmortem podcast which uh that's probably my favorite episode is the one where he interviews mike flanagan about dr sleep it's mostly about dr sleep a large portion of it is uh with other things about hill house and it was before the shooting of bly manor and he talks about pretty frankly about his disappointment with Dr. Sleep not having much success because it's like we really poured ourselves into this movie. It's just a shame that the audience didn't find it in the theater and the way I'm that sorry, it was Mike. I don't know why I didn't the way it, it was <laughs> no, it wasn't, but I think part of it is saying he didn't blame the audience in any way. He just was like it, it was disappointing. Of course, you know, this like how do you get over pouring so yeah. much into a movie you think is really really great and just having it be sort of but at the same time you have this rediscovery now that it's available on video and it's not all that different from something like say the Shawshank Redemption you know where you have this movie that was kind of a box office bomb nobody saw it and then sort of rediscovered it on video. And it's another Stephen King adaptation, which is why I bring it up. Yeah. You know, an emotional Stephen King adaptation, right? There's a little bit of that kind of thing going on. But the what convinced Stephen King to do it was he pitched to King. He said, okay, here's how we go back to the Overlook. We go back into the bar. And waiting on the bar is an empty glass. And it's been waiting for Dan. And when he gets there, he sits face to face with Jack Torrance. And King got it. He understood Mm -hmm. what this meant to be able to have the reconciliation of the book that the movie doesn't get. Yes. That there is that element where Jack isn't just gone. There's something that can be redeemed about the ending, Um, even if it's in the form of Dan instead of in the form of Jack. So uh, that, I think is what convinced him. And even, you know, on the special features, it's like, you know, hey, it was, gotta admit, it was good to go back. It was good to go back to the Overlook. And he didn't expect that to be the case. Because Stephen King was extremely pained. He was he was hurt by the way The Shining was made into a film. Yeah. The first time. because And, you know, he's never been precious about his, his work on film. No, he's always said, books and movies are different. My book is always gonna yeah. be there. So... He doesn't really. Yeah. He doesn't really care that much. But yeah, The Shining is one. The Shining's different. Yeah. The Shining is far more personal than I think he even realized. I think that's what it is. Yeah. 
I don't think it's it's not him hating on on Kubrick or anything or is like oh it's not my story I yeah I do think it was because you know he I think he said like he didn't even realize until like 30 years later that he was writing about himself with The Shining or something like that and so of course yeah he would be a little bit more precious and with I think especially with with the way that Jack is portrayed in the movie yeah in the book he Jack is, is a bad dude from beginning yeah, to end in the book he's very remorseful about having hurt danny you mm-hmm. know he, that like kills him and in the in the movie you don't really feel that even from Not the scene all. where he is uh talking about it to lloyd explaining to lloyd yeah. yeah he doesn't really have much of an arc in the movie he, does, he has a lot more of that in the book and I, that's probably what king is is fighting it was fighting with there with kubrick's Um, adaptation and i understand that yeah i mean honestly if you watch the shining he is ready to kill his entire family while they're on the car drive up to the overlook he doesn't need the hotel to convince him to chop up his family (laughs) i think he's intrigued by ullman's story it's like huh this gives me an excuse (laughs) you know i mean that's practically the way it comes across yeah and i'm not trying to shit on the shining i think the shining is a brilliant it truly is a masterpiece Neither, of no, modern yeah. horror. Uh, i just rewatched it a few weeks ago uh with my son who had never seen it he loved it i was surprised i was shocked that this cold clinical mm-hmm. kind of slow movie would be the one that he was really into because i also showed him the thing and he was kind of like it was good <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, i was surprised uh he was really tired he said that day but um yeah, but no, I love The Shining. Yeah, I'm not saying anything bad about The Shining in the movie. I love that movie. It's a fantastic yeah, movie. But thinking about it in terms of of characters, in terms of adaptations of King's work, which maybe I'm a little bit precious too, because I, I do love Stephen King. And like when you when you see certain adaptations, you're like, eh, that doesn't really do it for me. Like the adaptation of my favorite of his books is not my favorite movie at all. <laughs> Right, right. So, uh, which you really shouldn't do that. You know, like King says, you know, books and movies are different, but there are some things that that touch you a little bit differently that are a little bit more personal. And actually, I think it was really interesting too. um, Now, like King coming at Dr. Sleep and uh, he was, okay. I thought it was really interesting that um, both of these movies, The Shining and Dr. Sleep are both about addiction, basically. And Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was really it's probably a good thing for King to come back to this and to write Dr. Sleep when he's not over his addiction because you never get over it. You'll always be an alcoholic. You know, you'll always be dealing with that. But uh, to write a, a story that's about someone in recovery that's recovering that is redeemed, it was probably very good for him. And and, and then now knowing that Mike Flanagan also had his own struggles with alcohol, I think it was great that he was tackling this too but uh, even though i don't think he he hadn't really started his uh his recovery yet but it was probably one of those things like king writing the shining like he was probably attracted to it because you know he didn't even really know maybe that yeah. he was talking about himself or that he was attracted to the the story because it was already something that he was unconsciously you know dealing with yeah as i understand it was actually working on this movie was part of the impetus for him to go into recovery another good thing i mean the i think the work that we have gotten from flanagan since his sobriety has just been remarkable you know yes (laughs) so going back to what 
JD says about how do you think this is as an adaptation? I think this is actually one of the better adaptations of King. Yes. Uh, of King's work as something that is faithful to the book while also, you know, some adaptations are better if they're not too close to the book yeah. and some are better if they're really close to the book. A good example would be like, you know, a, a version of like Hearts of Darkness or the Heart of Darkness, you know. The best adaptation of that book, frankly, is Apocalypse Now because it gets at something that that a sort of direct um, adaptation of that story can't get at as well. Yeah. And I think this movie does a little of both and it makes that, uh, that really work. Because, I mean, there are some things that are altered for the movie that I think are extraordinarily effective. You know, you get Flanagan's voice in this. You know, some of the monologues and stories that are told are very Flanagan. Yes. You know, having just watched Midnight Mass again, it's like, <laughs> yeah. that's Flanagan talking through Billy when he's telling about deer hunting. Sure, yeah. The whole speech that the bartender gives about mouths that eat and eat and eat, uh, that's like, very that's Flanagan That's good, though. Me. I love that. That is, oh, we'll talk about that scene specifically. Yes, but yeah i also just love flanagan's style can i say just mm-hmm. the, the look of this movie is gorgeous i know there's something that he does with with the coloring and the lighting that is just so cinematic and it's absolutely gorgeous I, I, not bored or anything you know by like a frame of this movie because it's just it's so beautiful yeah i agree i agree so a uh, couple of things i think a lot of the other questions have to do with uh, Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> so should we talk about uh, Rose the Hat? Yeah, and sure. the True Knot? Uh, then I th- I'd love to come back to uh, Dan and Abra. But a great hero needs a great villain, right? Yeah. A couple of points here. Uh, this is sort of the, from our friend Stephen, a.k.a. the Chewy Walrus, is... Rebecca Ferguson, the best performance in any King adaptation, or is it just me being hyperbolic? <laughs> she it's comes up there for me. Pretty damn close. <laughs> it's up yeah. there. I, I got to say, for me, I think my favorite is actually still Dee Wallace in Cujo. I think her performance is remarkable. I didn't actually think about this question. Um, 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 I mean, Kathy Bates. Yeah. As Annie Kathy Wilkes. Bates. That's up there. I think James Caan in The Shining, too, is a, in one what? of the great performances. <laughs> in, 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 in Misery is one of the great performance performances. Yeah. Walken, The Dead Zone. Oh, he's Martin already. Sheen in The Dead Zone. Martin Sheen in The Dead Zone, maybe. <laughs> That's a good one, too. The ice, it's going to break. Okay, I got nothing. Sorry. I can't think on my, my feet right now. <laughs> That's all good. Yeah. So um, Rebecca Ferguson is, if it's... It's one of the top tier, though. Uh, it's one of the... And it, it seems like uh, naming a lot of women's performances, you know, as being the ones that really stand out. Uh, Piper Laurie and Sissy Spacek oh, and Carrie, I think, are great performances. <laughs> sure, yeah. Duh. Lots of great ones, though. So, and then... Um, so, relating to that, I uh, would love to know your thoughts on Rose the Hat as a king villain. Is she top tier for you? And she says, personally, one of my favorites. That's from Deanna Chapman. Rebecca Ferguson is really just, she completely embodied this character. She, uh, like the way she speaks. You know, I tried to imitate her at the beginning of the episode with her, her little, well, hi there. And the yeah. look in her eyes. I think probably the costuming helped her out a lot too. I mean, 
how can you not like become a completely different person with that with the, the hat and the way her hair is um, mm-hmm. I think she was really she really saw something in this character that she could have a lot of fun with and play with and she's charming in a, in her way because she's gorgeous mm-hmm. right but she's also yeah. completely cold and calculated. One of the most chilling lines I think that I've ever heard in a movie is when a little Jacob Tremblay asks, "Are you gonna hurt me?" Yes. And she says, "Yes." Yeah. And there's like the look on her face is just all about. I mean, obviously, like the the true knot is kind of like they're they're drug addicts <laughs> in a way. That's mm-hmm. how I saw them. Um, the look on her face is just it's all about like there's desire and hunger and need, and she's completely in all of them are, but she's kind of top tier in this one. Yeah, I would agree. I think one of the criticisms I hear is that. Rose the Hat is not at all described the way she is in the no, book. No, they're not. The, none of the, tr- the true not in the book, are, they're all old, aren't they? Mm-hmm. They're all like like a lot older and Rose they're is not... like six feet tall. She right. wears like, she. I picture her as almost like a uh, dressing like Nadja from what we do in the shadows. <laughs> you know, having this sort of vampire you know, and rice style vampire sure. look to her with, you know, it says her hat is on her head at an impossible angle. Right. Like yeah, it's yeah, always yeah. going to fall off and That's things right. like that, but it never does. And obviously they couldn't, how could, how do you do that on film? Mm. And I think the way that, cause I've heard a lot of people complaining about the, her hat. Uh, and I'm like, okay, I, I think, it? I think it actually looks pretty pretty dope i think it's it's, cool. um, it's obviously it's, like it weathered not, and like she's had it yeah. for years like a totally yeah and it looks mm-hmm. good on her i mean what's what's there to complain about i don't get it i know it was not the way i pictured it from the book but i was like that i i liked it when i saw it on film i was like okay that's that actually works for me i can actually see this now mm-hmm. whereas i was trying to picture that in the book and it just always seemed like i, I can't get this in my head you know what this is supposed to look like so she's uh obviously rebecca ferguson is not six feet tall Uh, (laughs) she's not this sort of big powerful physical presence so it comes through in the performance instead you know she's a she's a smaller woman but uh, the confidence by which she carries herself the looks on her face the you know her eyes are have have a hypnotic quality to them i think all really works to make the performance just as strong for me as what the book is trying to describe it captures the spirit of that without necessarily being down to the detail of the look that king wrote you know yeah and i i read something that mike flanagan said I think I hope I'm getting this right that, you know, having younger, more attractive people on screen would be more appealing to watch in a movie, but it also kind of goes along with their vampiric way of life that they're yeah. constantly wanting to look younger and look like the best version of themselves. Like she talks about, you know, eat well, live long and just be, mm-hmm. be the way you are now. Like your perfect version of yourself is like kind of a, a vampire trope that Mm -hmm. comes up a lot so i I think that's that works really well with the the way that he did it yeah it was interesting watching the true not um in relation to having just watched midnight mass 
Right. <laughs> you know, you see a lot of sort of similarities in the way the vampires function in, in Midnight Mass as they do here. Because uh, the, the True Not is essentially vampires. Yeah, that you know? was one of my questions yeah. um, for that we could talk about was who or what exactly is the True Not? Yeah. Now, the True Knot, uh, we talked, there was a movie that we talked about. It was like, hey, these characters are like the True Knot. I don't even remember Something what that Something Wicked was. This Way Comes. Something Wicked, that's right, where they sort of retain their youth by sucking the essence and souls out of these people, right? Yeah. And it's, there's a lot of similarity here to that. But I think for me, they're, like you said, I, I see them as, you know, drug addicts in the sense of being, um, human and having an addiction but i also see them as kind of a metaphor for addiction itself yeah. uh which is harder to put my finger on and sort of <laughs> explain in in beyond that well just in terms of like what exactly they are they're kind of described as just like semi-immortal beings that you know feed off of the psychic essence of people who shine but mm-hmm. so they're not after they become the true not like i think they were human before it's like yeah. it's like they were human before who who also shined um like rose yeah. rose and uh, you see that with it and, and andy, andy. Yeah. and then but then after they okay, okay the re- the way that they become a part of the true not is that they have to um essentially die in a way because they take they inhale the psychic essence from somebody who shines and then they feel all the pain of Mm -hmm. that person like as they died because that's how they that's what they put in the canisters is those people as they're dying and so they essentially die and then they but they become something else they're not human anymore afterwards as you see like in the way that they cycle quote unquote, and then die as the people of the true knot. So they don't really have, there's something that King made up. So they don't really have a specific name you can give them. Vampires is probably the closest, I would say, in a way, like quote unquote vampires. But I don't know. I just, I really like, I like when King makes up stuff like that. And it's, it's, I do too. I think that's a really cool, I, I remember reading this book. I was like, that's, that's actually super cool. I love that because because it's like it's almost like in the stand. They're like a reverse AA group. Yeah, it's almost like in the stand. It's like because they were both they were all originally mm-hmm. people who shined, right? So you have the people like Abra and Dan on one side, like the good shiners, and then you have the bad shiners yeah. or the true not. You know, yeah. like this is what would happen to you if you decided to use your shine for evil. Yeah, is essentially what he's doing. Yeah, and it's sort of that you know they're feeding their hunger for personal gratification only, mm. right? They don't care who they hurt. Nope. They have no empathy for the people they torture and kill and put through the ringer. This is the opposite of an AA meeting, right? right? <laughs> Instead of trying to move away from their addiction so that they will no longer hurt people, they lean into it with the express purpose of hurting people yeah. um, for their own life extension and youth and beauty and selfish things. Though I got to admit, their life of being on the road and a bunch of glampers kind of I don't know. It doesn't look super glamorous. Oh, I would love to do that. Are you kidding? Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. That sounds amazing. The Rose's, Rose's, Rose's trailer is dope. I would totally live pretty there. Pretty nice. I love that trailer. Pretty, pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I The hot tub in there yeah. and the... You know, she can kind of chill on the roof, you know, and on her little Zen carpet thing. (laughs) So, yeah. But yeah, like what does Rose say to Dan at the end of the movie? 
like if you join us, you know, you can indulge in yourself with no consequences, no hangovers. That's essentially what they're all about. It's like, we're don't care who you're because they only hurt children. They essentially eat children oh, because their shine is brighter. They're pure. They're pure. Yeah. And, they, and you can see in that scene with uh, the little boy that they don't give a shit. They've totally lost that because they're yeah, so I've, deep into their addiction. One of these uh, now um, <laughs> it's under the, the name Willie's Wonderlando, uh, <laughs> which I, I love that. That's funny. Okay. Uh, Jacob Tremblay's performance uh, that created sorrow and fear that felt uncomfortably real. I think that scene Mm -hmm. is, that's the scene that I heard talked about the most when this first came out. Like people thought it went too far. uh Uh-huh. It was too intense. Or at the same time, it was like, this movie has guts to do something like that. Because kids don't die in horror movies very often, you know, uh, as much as Mike Snoonian would like them to. Uh, (laughs) That's a a joke from the episode of Pot and the Pendulum that uh, Michelle was just on recently. Oh my God, Mike. Where uh, Mike brought, Mike was on a roll. It was pretty funny. Uh, Anyway. um, More kids dying, please. More more kids dying, please. No. But um, in this movie, not only is that character, I mean, he's referred to as the baseball boy, mm-hmm. um, but his name was... Trevor something. I wrote it down. Uh, Bradley Trevor. There you go. He is tortured. I mean, and like you said, you know, they're holding him down. He's screaming. And that part where he just, are you going to hurt me? And... She leans down and just looks right in his eyes with this gleeful look. Yes. Yep. Is one of the most chilling moments, I think, in any horror movie. And when I watch this movie in a weird way, I don't think of it as a horror movie through and through the way I think of some movies, right? It's definitely a horror film. Sure. But I think of, for me, I always think of like the emotional arc of the movie more. I think of the Mm -hmm. addiction and recovery. I think of, you know, my favorite sequence, which is the bar scene at the end. Those are the things that I tend to think of or, you know, sort of um, Flanagan, yes, is a horror director, but he's a horror director in the way of really dealing with reality and humanity, you know. And so, so this scene is a genuine horror scene Mm -hmm. um in in this in the middle of this movie and it's it's really gut-wrenching it's almost like they could he could have ended the scene at that line too you know yeah but he kept he keeps going uh to where it's yeah to some people it goes a little bit too far because um you know he gets she stabs him uh and and several times and you see blood on him you see blood on them afterwards when they're Mm -hmm. burying him but I also think it's just it's important watching them eat his steam in that scene because I think yeah. it that's important to show like who these people are and like what the real stakes of this movie are for Abra. Yes. It doesn't give the true not any excuses. No. <laughs> you know, cuz you can kind of watch them and go, "Hey, they're kind of cool." No, they're not you know, cool if at you're, all. <laughs> if you're too if you're too if you're if you don't see them do this though. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
It's like, yeah, they're just traveling around. You see what they campers. do. Yeah, you see what they do to Andy and like she's in pain or whatever. But you see where they got that pain from. That's when yeah. you're like, oh, fuck. OK, yeah, these are not good people at all. And they yeah. have no empathy for who they're doing it to. I mean, Ro- you could be charmed by Rose as cool as she is, as hot as she is. But this is who she mm-hmm. really is in this scene. This is who they all yeah. are in this scene. And I think that's important yeah, to absolutely. see. Absolutely. Yeah. But Jacob Tremblay, yes. Amazing little kid. He's Jacob g- Tremblay. Uh, that perform and I looked at I did I at first I was like, I, I you don't seen really room, know have who you? this kid is. Huh? You haven't seen Room, have you? I haven't seen Room. I am okay. I, you got but it. But I have seen Wonder and I have seen well, I've seen Luca. He did the voice in Luca. And he's a terrific actor. You gotta actor. see Room. <laughs> I'm like yeah, obsessed I know I with that movie. He's he carry he and Brie Larson in, in that movie, they're they're both amazing but he almost outshines her because he's just phenomenal Mm. he carries that movie so well and he's just like what six years old or something it's ridiculous how good he is yeah i and wonders a movie i haven't seen a lot but my kids um were reading the book in school we went to the theater and saw it even under all the makeup that he wears in that movie uh, it's a powerful performance so i mean i honestly i started crying 10 sec about 10 seconds into that movie and it what pretty much didn't movie? stop wonder i'm looking it up sorry it's uh based on a book about a boy that has uh, facial deformities and um the friends that he makes in a school a new school and um it's it's quite it's 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 powerful i mean it's maybe a little bit engineered to make you feel emotive right. <laughs> in certain ways, you know, and as manipulated a little right. bit, but you know what? It got me at the time and, uh, I'm glad for it. So anyway, but yeah, I, I definitely need to see room now that I kind of can place that actor with that performance and that name. Uh, I'm like, okay, I got to see more yes. of, of him. Plus that's um, just a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. So related also here, he also says, uh, Willie's Wonderlando, or you could just do an entire show on how, uh, Kylie Curran destroyed as Abra Stone. Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about Abra. Yeah. Abra is interesting because I think what she's doing, uh, yeah. And yes, the performance is incredible. Absolutely incredible for, to get such great performances out of these young actors, it's a sign also of a gifted director, someone who can work with children. I think it makes me think of Spielberg, you know, mm-hmm. to get really great performances out of young people, you know, including someone that we'll be talking about a little later, uh, <laughs> Henry Thomas. Uh, Spielberg got a great performance out of him, no, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think Mike Flanagan is cut in some ways from that cloth, too. With really difficult material, too. Yes, Highly emotional material. Uh, When she picture, when she, the shining of seeing the baseball boy die Mm -hmm. happens to her, that is wild. I mean, that is really great performing there. Oh, her in the, Um, in the car with Crow. Yes. I think it's pretty awesome too. (laughs) Yeah. For when she's herself and then also when she's Dan, she's amazing. Mm -hmm. She's so good. She's so I love it when good. she's channeling Dan. Yeah. This is just remarkable stuff. I mean, for someone her age to really pull that off and to really, you know, embody it and get 
it's like she it's like she gets the it's, weight of the yeah. character and the weight of yes, her own, and her, I, her own power you know like she understands like like this is what she has to do because because of the power that she holds and that's what she can that she may be the only one to stop these people uh it's like she, it's like she gets that so well like mm-hmm. the actress and yeah oh. and i love how brave she is about her shine mm-hmm. you know because dan is afraid of his power he does he wishes he didn't have it he's in a he lot spent of ways. his whole life dulling it with alcohol yeah he doesn't want yeah. to use it that's why actually almost kind of good that's the why the true not never was able to find him find him yeah but with abra she's like you know, I have this and I have it for a reason. And I don't know what that reason is, but I think I'm supposed to use it. Yeah. You know, she kind of runs toward the gift where Dan runs away from it. You know, mm-hmm. Dan tries to get her to stop. You know, tra- yeah. he says, you know, that line where he says, you know, do anything. Well, almost anything um, to don't do what I did. Yeah. And it's like, he, he tells her, don't shine. Don't let them find you. Do anything, well, almost anything to keep the shine down. I think that is so disappointing to her. Yeah. But, you know. I mean, you can also see her struggling with it, too, um, mm-hmm. uh, in dealing with her parents. Like she has that line yes. where she's like, they, they think I'm almost normal, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Right. Uh, because she's... You know, known like since she was a kid that even though her parents are very good about dealing with her, you know, when she asks, like, are you afraid of me? Like, you Mm -hmm. can kind of tell maybe they are a little like it's but it's something that they don't understand. But they know they're not afraid of her. But I mean, she's obviously different than them. She's got something that they that even at at this time, like her her dad. (laughs) It's like her mom is more into it than her dad is because her she's more open to she's it. She's way yeah. more open to it because she asked about, um, I guess, the, her mom or somebody. Uh, yeah, they don't really say it for sure because they just say Momo. So <laughs> it's probably yeah. her mom because it's usually like a grandmother name, isn't it? Mm-hmm. This is uh, something where I can also there. The, these are some of the slight differences. People have asked, you know, what are the differences between the director's cut and the theatrical cut? Okay. I believe the scene with the spoons on the ceiling is not in the theatrical cut, what? but the thing, w- the, but the thing with the piano is, or it's the other way around. It's one way or the other. But I actually really think the introduction of Abra sitting at the piano playing "Teacher Children Well" coming right after you know Dan has hit rock bottom, you know, and leaves the toddler on the bed yeah. with the dead woman is really interesting because, okay, here's a, here's a young girl who has the same powers that Dan had, right? We know we can tell, mm-hmm. or we, we learn that she does, but that song is sort of like you have it instantly tells you, okay, she's going to be different than Dan because her parents, both of them are wonderful, <laughs> you know, is, and there's yeah. sort of this teach, teach your children. Well, uh, is sort of this, lovely thing that is brought through there because in the book it's a different song uh you know i mean it's probably the warner brothers catalog and the other one that was in the book wasn't you know that sort of thing i don't know that song what is what is that uh it's a crosby stills and nash song maybe and young i'm not sure um teach your children well 
You don't know that one? Nope. Okay, look it up. <laughs> okay. Um, Google it. <laughs> Sorry. Jeez. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm teasing. I can't know everything, Brian. <laughs> um, I know. I know. I actually kind of don't like that song, but it's... Um, <laughs> It's it's uh it the message of it reaching in there is is really nice because obviously you have Dan struggling with his father's demons mm-hmm. and that is drawing that connection between these two characters right from the start long before they ever in- actually encounter each other even through psychic connection mm-hmm. and so then that wonderful scene where they hear the piano playing in the middle of the night and they go downstairs and it's playing by itself. I mean, this is, I love that stuff. You know, it's great. I like the spoon scene too. That, that the, the one who plays younger Evra is like that mix, th- that mix of being like a, a freaking adorable, but also like kind of creepy when she's like abracadabra. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Like, ah. Well, and you know, having her named Abra, right. You know, she's magic. She's magic. Yeah. You know, and she likes to do tricks. Oh, well, uh, she likes well, to do magic tricks. Yeah, one thing with um, going back to Rose, sorry, but another child actress is the little girl Violet. The very first scene in the movie with oh, gosh, with Violet yeah. and Rose oh. is so that's incredibly creepy and chilling. But then oh, also, um, she eats the flower. I think yeah, is you one don't of those eat flowers. Like, and that girl is so adorable too. Yeah. Oh yeah. All the you know I I didn't really <laughs> draw that conclusion. It's like. Yeah, the child performances in this there movie, are. all so many of good them ones. are really good. Wow. Um, another difference between the director's cut and the theatrical cut is those chapter titles. Uh-huh. So we kind of are set off on the new section, which is a little bit of a callback to The Shining. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously those are hard cuts with black backgrounds in The Shining famously with, you know, the big sound effect, sure. you know, happening. But here they're um, they draw that together a little bit, and I think that's a, that telling it as sort of a book that way I think is effective for the longer cut. Mm-hmm. I think it works yeah. really well. Honestly, the the only other big scene I can remember is something we'll talk about later because um, most of the most of the things are just like bits of dialogue and small scenes. They're not like massive things. It's just like not like deleted scenes except in one case that I remember, and just like extended scenes. It's more like extended okay. scenes than deleted scenes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just tightened up a little bit for a theatrical release, you know. Uh, and it was still like two and a half hours. <laughs> it's not <laughs> that much longer, uh, but what is different, I think, is really effective. I think the bar scene in particular is better in the director's cut uh, because the whole story about Dan seeing the flies around his mother is shorter and just confronting him about, you know, she was your wife and all these things. He has a better reckoning with his, with the ghosts of his father, that presence than he does in the theatrical cut. So it's not crazy different, but no, I I just remember watching the director's cut and feeling like this feels more complete. Yeah. So a couple people asked about, about that. And so that's my biggest thing. Now, um, when it comes to, Abra, I just love how intelligent and sort of, she's kind of cunning too. She's just as smart as Rose the Hat. You know, she's just as sort of devious, but in a way that is kind of mischievous, I guess, Mm -hmm. not devious, you know, where she's like, you mean like a magic trick, that whole thing where they set up (laughs) the bunny as being her and, and stuff is terrific. It's kind of a, 
kind of a last Jedi moment where she projects herself out to uh, this other location. But I dig that. I, I like that in both movies. So, hey. The way that... She... For all you Star Wars fans yeah, out there. Sorry. <laughs> <sighs> I'm sorry. I'm a Star Wars fan. I'm going to get not. you to watch Star Wars one of these days. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, I guess you watch 2001 <laughs> one of these days. Now, that would be a real... That would be That'd a real, be a real breakthrough. Yes, it would yeah. be. <laughs> but yeah, also the way that she she sets traps for Rose. Yes. She has things stored. I liked the another connection that we did mention before to another King work is um, there are different versions of uh, memory warehouses, which mm-hmm. is from Dreamcatcher. Dream I haven't read Dreamcatcher or seen the movie, so ah. I'm not. Uh... <laughs> I know people don't really like either one of those but i'm i'm, I'm a fan <laughs> i'm curious i'm a fan to see it i love you know that uh, of course there's hand trauma yes i totally forgot this about is a that. flanagan film yeah, yeah. <laughs> gosh can th- that guy he just hates <laughs> hands he doesn't like hands. i mean even in even in midnight mass when he's clutching the the cross in his hand and the crucifix in his hand and it makes him his hand bleed i, I <laughs> really thought about that until watching it was like man every movie's got to have hand trauma uh the way that abra disguises herself in her own mind for the purple hair Uh and sort of the features are flattened out a little bit i love that yeah so like i said it's like she she knows her own power and she's she's a little bit reckless with it too you can kind of see like that connection between her and rose um they both can Kind of, they both have similar powers, I think, because everybody like in the True Knot seems to have like a different type of power. You know, they call mm-hmm. they call Snakebite Andy a pusher. Um, yeah, Crow is really good at like finding people. Yeah, and Rose can get inside people's minds and astral project, uh, same as yeah. as Abra can. So that's really good. Uh, like pitting the two of them against each other because again, that's one that's using it for for good and using it for the other one using it for evil but you can also see how the good one is she's having a little bit of fun with rose like when she's te- when she's telling dan about it later on she's like i got inside her head i got inside her head and i like later all these tricks yeah and he has to tell her to back off a little bit you know mm-hmm. but she yeah she's i don't know where i was going with that but she, yes <laughs> she's very smart and like she she knows her powers and what she can use it for and the fact that she chooses it for good and doesn't um is never really swayed by obviously she's seen what happened to the baseball boy so she would never yes. i don't think she could ever you know they could never turn her now, as much as they they tried to you know push her in her mind you know to get her to join them uh which rose doesn't want to do right i like that line from her too because when um she's telling crow about discovering abra he, he asks at first like do we turn her or do we use her for food and what does she say she says no we don't turn her imagine someone like we that. don't turn her anyone with that kind of power we don't want anyone with that kind of power in the knot i think what that's she, interesting what she is she saying though she's saying she doesn't want anyone more powerful than more her powerful than her in the true knot that's exactly what she's saying yeah yep and can you imagine you know abra as she learns to control all this more and more you know especially if she exercises that power how strong she would become mm-hmm. you know as a force for good, I mean, it's almost sort of like Rose the Hat being this devil and her being this 
uh, angel figure and then just fighting against each other. Uh-huh. There's sort of a, there's very much a stand kind of element. Yes to that there's very much you know mother abigail and uh randall flag going yep. on with that and you can see that i think that's brought out more in the movie even than in the book as i recall which is interesting because yeah. you know flanagan's obviously a king fan <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah dan even has a line at the end um, yeah that's right when about, the, his his yeah. spirit is talking to abra at the end he says that she's I don't. Know, I can't remember exactly what the line is, but she says like he's. She's one of the good people, one of the people who stand. And I was like, one ah. of the people who stand. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's also uh, okay. Um, so a couple of things that I, I'd love to talk about the character of Dan and how he relates to Abra. So we'll bring Abra back into this, I think. Yeah. But how they did the recreations, you know, of characters of oh, Wendy, yeah. of young Danny, and of Dick. Amazing. <laughs> Smart way to do it. Yes. So glad they did it that way. I think doing it in like the computer face replacement way would have been distracting and problematic. And also the character of Jack, you know, the bartender, they, he's called the bartender, but it's obviously Jack. Yeah. And none of them are doing imitations of the original uh, performer. The one that comes bit. closest... The one that comes closest, in my opinion, is uh, Wendy. Wendy. Yes. <laughs> Who is played by? Um, let me get the name here. Oh, um, shoot! She plays Millie in the in the Midnight Mass. God damn it! What's her name? Alex Esso. Yes. Alex Esso plays Wendy Torrance. She's amazing in Starry Eyes, which I haven't seen. Oh, you got to see Starry Eyes. Um, She's fantastic. Yeah, but I she channels a little bit of uh, of Shelley Duvall into sure. it, which is not overly which is fine. so though. Just, no. a, just enough to where this is Wendy, you know? Yeah. They get, the, um, they get her shaggy hair cut, like, so they get good. The hair it's just right. so perfect, yeah. I think Carl Lumley as Dick Holleran, I think, is terrific. And to make him a ghost, I mean, obviously, he's he's actually appears alive yes. in the book, right? Because he survives. And Dick Holleran's a character that sort of shows up in various King books. He's got a moment in It, uh, in the history there. Uh, he was the cook at the black spot, I think, What it was in the the place that burned down. So it's been that. a long time since I read <laughs> it, but yeah. But I think he really captures the Scatman Crothers sort of energy, but I think he actually in some ways gives a better performance than Catman Crothers, Crothers does. Because, I mean, because he's a real actor, you know, whereas Scatman is great, but he's <laughs> not really an actor. I mean, he's... <laughs> He's a terrific, I use this word, he's a terrific presence, but he's, <laughs> I love having him there, but you know, he's, he's, and I, I love him in The Shining, don't yeah. get me wrong, but, um, but I think what this Dick Halloran is, is to Danny at the different times of life is, I know he just speaks to him in just the right way. Yes. It's like he always um, knows exactly what he needs to hear, even if he doesn't always listen to him. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Now, I I honestly think the first appearance, I feel like the this is my opinion. I don't know if I'm way off here, but I feel like the first appearance of Dick when he's talking to Danny as a boy mm-hmm. is legitimately the ghost of Dick Halloran telling him how to deal with this situation. The ghost of the Overlook. However, yeah, yeah I honestly think that when Dan sees him in the rock bottom scene. Okay. You know, the scene where he is just, where he's going to steal the, the woman's woman and money and he's, that's such, yeah. I remember that. Bit. I remember that scene in the book actually, like really getting to me. Like, yes, it got to me in the movie too. Yeah. 
But I just feel like, I feel like that's Dan's conscience, maybe even more than it is Dick Holleran. And he's like, you know this to be true. You already know this because you're a good, decent person yeah. deep down. You've just been squelching it with this poison you're putting into your body. So you and don't then also. So you don't think that I'm not was sure. real? The only real appearances were him when he was a boy and then later at the, the nursing home? When he said, I'm when not he even says, sure the nursing home one. But he says that's With his, the nursing home. He says that's his last appearance that he's going to make. He does. He does. And there's something about what he says that's almost like, again, this is something you know. Let me find that. Um, it says, you grew up fine, but you still owe a debt. Pay it. These are kinds of things that I feel like he knows this to be true. He knows that Abra uh, needs his help and he should give it to her and he that you know he knows all this stuff i feel like you know it's almost like part of recovery happening uh in his mind and in his you know sort of the deepest parts of his soul you know um so whether it's dick hollerin or not or if it's sort of like a it almost comes across a little bit of a jiminy cricket kind of thing (laughs) um you know not in a (laughs) corny way i think it's really effective but there is something in me that's like this is sort of voicing dan's conscience deep down you know this already uh to be true that so. that line also kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, another king work the the green mile yeah because he says that at the end too like we all owe a debt mm-hmm. and that's brought up a couple times in this and it's like what dick is saying there is that uh yeah dan has gotten sober and turned his life around but he's not done yet right and that's that's a hard thing for him to recognize and reconcile at first you know like maybe he doesn't want to exactly confront all those demons he's put them away in his mind um, those little boxes in the the hedge maze of the overlook for so long but yeah he eventually he does the right thing and it comes full circle yeah in that bar scene absolutely i feel like i'm not really saying anything i'm just like saying what happens in the movie no it's (laughs) Absolutely true. But I mean, I think a couple of things I want to say about Ewan McGregor, I think I still feel like he's not really appreciated for how great of an actor he is. Yeah, I actually he doesn't get a lot of recognition. I actually think that what he's doing in this movie is just one example of how good he is. And I I love him in the train spotting movies. I like him in Star Wars. I think he's true. He's probably from... For me, I think he's probably the best thing about the prequels. Uh, He's really good in them. He just sort of kind of gets thought of, I think, oh, he's attractive and he's, it's (laughs) like, he's, but he's got so much going on. This movie is, to me, an Oscar worthy performance. I think it's that good because he's going through so many different subtleties. His addictions, when he's really drunk and when he's hung over, those scenes are so compelling and so kind of heartbreaking and you kind of hate him, you know, yeah. <laughs> at the beginning of this movie as you should. Right. Yeah. Um, because what he does at the beginning of this movie, leaving the, he doesn't really check to see if this woman is alive or dead. He just wants to leave. He just wants to get out of the situation and he sees this baby here. He knows she's probably OD'd. And maybe choked on her own vomit. Who knows? If and not already, the yeah. baby if there. not already dead, then going going to be dead soon. Yeah. yeah. 
And he just gives the kids some Cheez-Its and <laughs> leaves them there on the bed. Ugh. Oh, gosh. That's tough. And, and then, <laughs> then you know, he even sees with Dick, the dead baby yeah, later. Even with Dick in his ear saying, like, you could at least leave her money, Doc. You know, like, you're already doing a yeah. horrible thing by maybe not telling anybody about them. Not even checking this. I think you can see that she's breathing. But that might have just yeah. been, like, the acting. I don't know. Uh, but not even checking to see if she's gonna make it just wanting right. to leave that's a good scene for showing somebody at their rock bottom you know <laughs> yeah because that, I mean, that really it, conveys it all it really does and that they they haunt i remember i remember them haunting him a lot more in the book is that right the 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 woman uh, and her baby the woman and the baby yeah. probably that's what that's one thing i remember them showing up a lot more like him seeing that the the dead toddler a lot more i think you know the one thing because flanagan does that incredibly effectively in that haunting of the rock bottom moment in midnight mass with riley Hmm? where every time he goes to bed he sees that woman in front of his face and eventually it's just like you're gonna be there how are you today you know (laughs) uh, it's it's that, you know, this idea, you know, that is presented here, sort of taken to this extended version that it can be in a series that it maybe can't be yeah. here. Uh, this is one of those movies that I'm almost like, man, this could have been a series and I would have eaten it up. Sure. You know, I would have enjoyed, you know, let's have a let's have an episode that's about Snake Bad Andy. Yeah, totally. Let's have an, you know, that all of that. I think you could do you could flesh out every single one of these things and every one of these chapters into a full hour long episode Probably. and it would be incredibly compelling. I think so. Yeah. Uh I love different things that are these nice callbacks that they have to the original Shining, you know, like uh the interview that Dan has with Dr. John. Oh my God. I totally I forgot about that for a, a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Set up uh, exactly like, like Jack's interview with Ullman. So good. The, it's the same room. It's the same setup. It's the same trees out the window. Everything about it is exactly the same, <laughs> but it's not horribly intrusive. No, you know, it's like if, it, if you, if you know, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And just, Another thing about that I love about Mike Flanagan is just just seeing all of his his people, you know, his mm-hmm. uh, cadre of actors, um, even in smaller roles. Uh, yeah. This I don't know his name, uh, Bruce something. I want to say yes, Greenwood. Bruce Greenwood. Greenwood. Yes, that's Ed, correct. Go me. Yeah. yeah, he was Gerald in Gerald's Game. That's right. So that's right. I had forgotten about that, but yeah. Well, I mean, then you've got Robert Longstreet yeah. as Barry the Chunk, who was Joe, Joe Colley. Yeah. Um, I totally yeah. forgot he was in this. And he's also Lonnie in Halloween Kills. Nice. Yeah. Boy, he had a rough year. He got <laughs> killed a lot this year. Aw. Anyway. Uh, but I love things, you know, like, uh, like that. Um, okay. So the whole thing, the whole Dr. Sleep name mm-hmm is referring to Dan, of course, right? Yeah. I think that scene, that f- those scenes that he is in that role as Dr. Sleep are really powerful. Because the first one, the first one, first of all, the patient that he sees is in room 217. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice little touch there. But he calls him Doc. Yep. You know, it's almost like this guy shines <laughs> to, and doesn't even know it, you know? And he just says, Doc, I'm so scared it's going to hurt or be dark or be nothing at all. And that's exactly what we were talking about. I know, right? I thought that too. I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you but, would think from I don't know I kind of had this feeling too like of, of Dan going through his recovery and like not not being done and like maybe having to sacrifice himself at the the end of this movie all that whole thing uh, I almost kind of felt like uh, like he was working towards it by being Doctor Sleep yeah because he he spent his whole life trying to dull his shine and yes he finally uses it again as an adult here to help these people um, as they're crossing over i guess you could say in a way yeah he's kind of doing that but that's also him using his shine is also what allows abra to be able to find him and like their that's how their connection is formed and how he gets involved with the whole true knot in the first place so um it's it's almost kind of like fate (laughs) like fate was kind of messing with him in a way like that he's yeah he was always going to end up back at the overlook it's almost like a finding of purpose yeah you know and for a while maybe his purpose is just to guide these people and that would have been great for him and eventually it is to um help abra you know Mm -hmm. but But yeah i do love what i wrote was he turns his gift from one of fear to one of comfort so he turns this gift around he says because he was always afraid of the shine right he it always freaked him out whereas here he's taking he's using it instead to take away people's fear Mm -hmm. and it's just it's kind of like when he and abra are talking mm -hmm. about uh, both of them dealing with it and it's like oh you know my mom occasionally asks you know like where uh, to find something that she's lost you know it's it's them kind of dulling their their shine a little bit because they're scared of it because they, they recognize that other people are scared of it but if you can find something good in it that like like dan does then it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Again, it's the difference between the good shiners and the bad shiners. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's also in this scene there's a there's a parallel line here, okay, where he says we don't end mm-hmm. Charlie. He says to her him. It kind of puts it in the negative though. He said we don't end. Whereas at the end, Abra says it in a positive way. She says we go on after. Yes. And I don't know why that struck me, but it really did that there's this something about Abra is sort of like what was so great about Danny, but all the good, but taken to a new level. It's like doing even more good than him. And and Mm -hmm. that line sort of reflects that, that Dan sort of sees the shine in a negative way and she sees it in a positive way in a way it's, it's, I don't know. I'm probably talking out of my ass here, but that I think, I think he he learned me though. He learns by the end that yeah, it, when he it tells can her be to a, shine, it on. can be a positive thing. Yeah, he's he's yeah. doing the same thing that Dick did for him and like mm-hmm. teaching her how to use it right or showing her like how she can use it for for good. And yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and Dick tried to, but he didn't have the time to. Yeah. He, he taught him how to deal with the, the ghosts that were haunting him, but he mm-hmm. couldn't really, he couldn't, yeah, he couldn't really teach him to shine on. Right, right. Because they say that, like, Dan says he's only ever met, like, two or three people, in, like, in his entire life who knew that they shined. Yes. So there's, I don't know, there's, like, the, the an outcast thing, obviously, um, having to do with those mm-hmm. kind of characters. And that's maybe the appeal of something like the true knot being in a community. Yeah. Cause what does Rose say? It's like, community. yeah. What does Rose say every time, you know, like referring to somebody else, especially Crow, she's like, that's not, that's my friend. That's my family. Right. She calls them family. So I think there is like kind of <laughs> real, like as horrible as those people are, mm-hmm. like they have built this kind of community, a little 
community of outcasts in a way that if they were yeah. doing it for good instead of for evil, it could be a good thing for people like Dan and Abra who had to go through. Well, Abra was much luckier, I think, than than Dan, who didn't have uh, Abra didn't have as much of a traumatic childhood. She had somebody from pretty early on to to teach her. Dan had had Dick, but not in the same way that Abra has Dan. Yeah. Like like we've been talking about, like about using the shine for in good and not bad. I don't know. <laughs> no, you're, you're I, I'm yeah, I get you. I think you're right on there. Another thing about Dan, okay. Now I'm gonna get a little Jesusy here. I, uh, I got that I, from your article, and I was like, I didn't see that, but okay. How you didn't see that? No. <laughs> that he's a Christ figure? No. Well, I mean, he's... he goes through. Three temptations. <laughs> I don't know that. He sacrifices story. himself. I got that he sacrifices himself. <laughs> His mother appears to him while he's dying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's a resurrection at the end where he's talking to Abra and has her carry on his work. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Uh, okay to me that to me that's that's uh that's what I see. Okay. See I can't so I th- that's that's all the difference yeah. is that we talked about. You can see that kind of stuff and I can't. Yeah. No, that's fine. I do that's have a question fine. about when we get to maybe more of the overlook part at the end. Yeah. Well, I think I think with Dan, I think there are three interesting moments of temptation for him. The first one, uh, after Abra is kidnapped and he finds that her father has been killed, he goes back to his room and he's got the whiskey bottle mm-hmm. and he almost drinks i think that scene um when i I remember when i first saw that thinking oh man uh, i i felt every second of that and then he just he tosses it away you know that is you know the temptation of feeding your hunger yeah you know feeding the thirst right and then at the bar you know you have this reconnection with his father but also then where Rose says to him, you could live forever. You could be powerful. You could rule and all these things. She's essentially giving him, you know, the opportunity to join them. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is pledge your allegiance to me. That's almost directly biblical. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, Jesus is offered by Satan. He says, these are all the kingdoms of kingdoms of the world i'll give them all to you if you'll bow down and worship me and jesus says no that is uh i think an interesting thing and that's where i first started realizing that flanagan is so when midnight mass came out i was like i already knew that you know (laughs) you know that there was gonna be that he tackled religious subjects i mean and if he's working on midnight mass while he's working on this like you said uh i can see i think they they had just finished he was finalizing Dr. Sleep, yeah, as he was starting yeah, the I could, I could see how they could leak into each other yeah. quite a bit. So there's definitely that there. Well, now I feel okay, dumb so for never seeing religious stuff. I can't it's, help it. It's, I can't help but notice <laughs> I know. it, though. So I, I, I get it. I um, you only I, know like all I only know like the most basic like well known like Bible stories. You know all that other stuff. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I think okay, so I can mention it. I wrote a article for Manor Vellum mm, over a year ago now about The Shining, the three different versions of The Shining. So the book, the Kubrick movie, the Mick Garris movie, and then Dr. Sleep, the movie mostly, though I talk about the book a little. 
And I kind of cover that in the Dr. Sleep section of that because there's a sense that where uh, Jack fails, Dan succeeds, right? Mm -hmm. And there's sort of this connection between Adam and Jesus there. If you want to get into that, you can. Uh, you can read that in um, in that article if you <laughs> so desire. I'll link it up. But that is why, you know, in answer to JD's other question, what is your favorite set piece setting? My favorite is the bar scene in the Overlook. Okay, let's talk about that. I know you really want to talk about it. <laughs> and I after was... after you saying that and reading your article and kind of thinking more about what it really means, yeah, I kind of agree that it's it's at least one of the most important scenes in the movie. I was just struck by and now in the longer version, there's just more of the bar scene. Okay. There's and uh the also there's the scene in the bathroom afterwards that is not in the theatrical cut. Ugh. So, and I like what is said in the bathroom scene, but it almost feels like it goes on longer than it needs to. <laughs> but it looks cool because it's the same but it bathroom. Looks cool it's the same, it's the exact same shot. Everything. Yeah, I yeah, know, yeah, I know. Cool. I'm really torn on it because I kind I of like the way the bar scene ends <laughs> with with Abra calling him and he looks back mm-hmm. uh, in the theatrical cut. The In the bathroom scene, that was where, I, I don't know... Um, how I missed it before. That was when I actually realized that that was Henry Thomas playing Jack because they just yeah. do so well with uh, recreating uh, his hairdo in that. And he just, mm-hmm. he did like, like he said, like none of, nobody ever really leans too much into doing an imitation of the, no. the original actors, but they, they get it just enough. Like there's one shot where you can be like, Oh, that's Henry Thomas. Yeah. That's perfect. You know what's interesting about this bar scene? I think that, as afraid of he as he is about his father, this is also there's a temptation here to you know drink that glass because it's like there is something about the connection to the father, whoever it is. You know, I've experienced this with people who even have had bad relationships with their fathers. There's it's like a lot of them have said something along the lines of, "But he's still my dad." Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and that's that's a complicated emotion sure. I get. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, but then my question then about that last drink and mm-hmm. why I think it is so important for his arc, for his sobriety, um for what he for um what happened to his father, what he know could happen to him is um I think he definitely went into the overlook not only to defeat Rose finally, yeah. but I think he, he went there knowing that he was not going to come out alive. Yeah, I think that's probably true. So he could have had that last drink because he was already thinking that it would have been his last drink, you know? Mm-hmm. He could have indulged that one last time, but it was so important for him not to, because uh, if he had the same thing, I think that happened to his father would have happened to him that if he had indulged it it would have allowed the hotel to overtake him even more yeah and but this way he's still got and it does we see in that final scene when like the hotel kind of possesses him whatever but yeah but it's through a different means yeah but abra is not yeah yeah but if he had indulged like like he would have become a part of the hotel afterwards i think if he might have done that you know like if he had and yeah if he I had do. indulged like that's probably what have 
would have happened to him. So it's so important, not just, you know, from the stance of, of an alcoholic, you know, fighting his recovery, but just for, you know, what could have happened to him in the world of King and uh, ghosts and the, the overlook. But more importantly, I think for his sobriety, like he realized like that would have been throwing away so much more, even though that he could have had that one last drink, because I, I do think that he went in there knowing that he was probably going to have to sacrifice himself to end it all, not just Rose, but the Overlook and, and all the ghosts there. Yeah, that's something I hadn't thought about. That's profound. That really um, adds even more to that scene. And gosh, I I think the way that Henry Thomas and uh, Ewan McGregor are playing this scene they're almost talking past each other to some extent. It's like, yeah, you know, Jack's responses especially don't feel like he's listening. Listening, he doesn't feel yeah. like he's actually responding to what he's saying. He's just saying like scripted lines that the hotel has for him, you know. And ending it with his speech about the world is filled with mouths and those mouths speech. feed, and oh uh, man, it's so good. And then he says, "So I ask you again." Are you going to take your medicine? Mm -hmm. Which is very much in the King book, Mm -hmm. but not in the movie that much. I don't recall it being in the movie as, you know, come and take your medicine, Danny. In the Kubrick training? Yeah. Doesn't he say, oh my God, I don't remember. (laughs) So I can't remember. I thought of, I thought I remember him saying that as he was uh, chasing him around the hotel with the axe. Yeah, which would make sense. I mean, that is the that's the whole thing. I mean, the whole idea is they're drawn to a place that I think is this is where for me, you know, the entering of the Overlook is where you really start to reconcile all these different versions of The Shining. Mm-hmm. It's kind of miraculous. It's it a is. magic trick in itself. <laughs> it <you> know, is <laughs> that it works so well. Yeah, that speech, and then also, but also uh, Dan's speech about when he was a kid, he would see the black flies when people were going to die, and he's talking about Wendy dying. He says, she was your wife. Don't you care about that? Wouldn't you have wanted to be there? He's like, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know what you're talking about, even though he clearly does by his later responses, Mm. you know, because his responses become more personal later. Yeah. Uh, you know, even though he tries it's to not, kind of ignore it. It's not really Jack he's talking to there, there though. It's, no, it's, ho- not. it's Hotel Jack, which is very different. It is. It's it's the bartender. It's the caretaker. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes that kind of ties into this bar scene is when um, Dan is giving his, he's at the AA meeting getting his chip and he gives that speech uh, about his father. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's really important. It is to the end of this too it is because it's like he saw um, he saw the struggle of his father that his father had and that's another way that they reconcile what actually happens in the book when he says he broke my arm instead of he dislocated a shoulder (laughs) (laughs) forgot about that i liked that little line drop which i think is a little bit more intense like i don't know why that little change was made for the Kubrick's version like isn't it more more horrible that you broke your child's arm right well the thing is he's trying to, in the shining i really think he's trying to explain it away it's just like oh i just it, it just happened you know whereas he feels That's real true. remorse in the book it's it's harder to mm-hmm. explain away a broken arm <laughs> than a dislocated shoulder yeah because the way that wendy explains it you know like you use too much strength on a little kid's arm mm-hmm. you know pulling him away yeah even wendy kind of it tries to explain it away a little bit in The Shining, which 
honestly, I think actually, I don't think she kind of makes sense though. I think they're, of course, she's putting on a face. She is because she she's is. pissed off at him. She hates him for what he did to Danny. And oh yeah, inside. Oh yeah, um, but at the same time, it's a little bit of why is why is she still with him um, in that sense too? Um, but then the scene where he she can uh, where I'm sorry where Danny comes down with the bruises on his neck, mm-hmm. she essentially is going to leave Jack at that moment. If they but yeah. they're snowed in, they can't go anywhere. It's like just stay away from us, you know, as in in The Shining. Yeah, like that speech that he gives at the AA meeting. It's um, I didn't really think about this. It's another thing I didn't really think about this before I started talking about it. But it's like he he know he says in that speech like he knows exactly where all of his problems come from. He says like all of the 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 anger, the the drinking, everything. Those parts of me in parts that are in me are from him. And that's why it's it's so important that he gets to essentially confront his father at the end of the movie and that he doesn't really defeat him. But he like I said before, like he he rises above and doesn't become what it's because like you had that quote from from King about how he imagined at first Danny was probably off somewhere like beating his kids or something, yeah. you know, like that's who he grew up to be. But he was, he's been determined to not grow up, to be that the whole way. That was Alcoholic King who said that too, though. Right. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. But this but this Danny is determined not to do that in every step of the way, as much as he is tempted. Just good. So no, it's just a, I lo- I, yeah, I love the whole reconciliation of his and his character arc at, this, at the end of this. Yeah. I don't, I don't have anything else. <laughs> yeah. So, do you have an answer to JD's question for a favorite scene or setting? Actually, some of my favorite stuff in this, like I said before, when I was reading Doctor Sleep, one thing that I was just thinking about the whole time was how is this going to look on film if anybody tries to adapt it? And I I love the way that all those scenes of um, them, like, uh, especially between Rose and Abra, all of their, like, in their mind scenes are some of my favorites. I think like Rose in the grocery store. I love that part. Yeah. When um, she gets, uh, I like the way she, she describes it. um, That's like, they have their own little language about the shining when she's Rose is describing it later to crows. Like I tried to turn around in her and she blew me out of her mind. Like I was nothing Mm -hmm. like, I love, I love that scene. The, the scene where Rose is uh, in Abra's bedroom and her like inside her mind. uh, Yes. That's yeah, funny. I like that. I just like the um, the way that he's able to um, present these things. Like you can picture it as you're reading the book, but you always wonder, like, uh, is that going to look corny or is that going to look weird or something? Like, mm-hmm. how is this going to look plausible on screen? And like, it's, it was the same with um, with Gerald's game. I think uh, Mike Flanagan just kind of knows how to make all of that be very palatable for whoever's watching it. So it's yeah. like you get what's happening. Yeah, I think so, too. Now, another thing I really like is stylistically, most of what Flanagan's doing is fairly unobtrusive, right? Every now and then he'll do like a moving steady cam thing that is just a tiny, subtle callback to Kubrick, huh? that sort of thing. But then when it goes to those moments, you know, the astral projections and things like that, where the whole rooms just turn on their sides. Or Abra's like holding onto the window. Window, and yeah. turns. Or even when Rose is like Rose literally is flying, flying. Flying through the air. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when she's flying. The way she lands on the street, too. Yes. It's just so cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think those things are really 
uh, effective to sort of create the dreaminess of it all. I honestly, I have to say, like rewatching it a couple of times. My favorite thing was uh, going back to the overlook at the end and the way he recreated a lot of those shots is like probably the best one I would think is as Rose uh, coming up the stairs mm-hmm. in the same way. Like, but it's obviously reversed. Right. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like he got the perfect angle and it, uh, it's just like as being a fan, you know, you, you watch it and you're just like, that looks yeah. so cool. I love seeing that. <laughs> you know, I love when Rose is coming into the Overlook on her own and she's just kind of looking around at everything going, yes. huh. You know, like when the blood comes out the door of the elevator, she, she just, she just she looks loves at it, it. Like, this is so cool. It's like there's this, yeah. okay, there's this episode, Halloween episode of The Simpsons called The Shinning, which is a spoof of The Shining. And... Mm-hmm. um Mr. Burns is taking him on a tour and the blood comes out of the elevator and he says, that's funny. Usually the blood gets off at the second floor. And <laughs> the, the look on Rose's face in that part always makes me think, huh, that's funny. The blood usually gets off at the second floor. Because <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> she's just she's, so matter of fact about it. I think it's her. I do like the, that moment, too, because yeah. I think it's her. She loves this place. She would move into the Overlook Absolutely. right now, you know, because yeah, it's she totally feels right at home. It totally meshes with her. And like when she sees that, she's like, ah, I like that trick. That's cool. That's a cool magic trick. You know, she is almost the Overlook in human form. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I kind of liked about it. And, you know, I, I like, you know, things like the hedge mage being brought back. And mm-hmm. so many of the details are just so spot on. I mean, obviously they, they just... <laughs> scrutinized these things to make them exactly the way they were uh, yes. in the original, just weathered and old and run down. Uh, even the boiler room, which you barely see in The Shining, is perfectly right. recreated. It's so well done. I got, I got chills when I saw it the first time. I was like, oh my gosh, we're really going back into that hotel. Which, I, I again, like I said, I was excited to see because from reading Dr. Sleep, the hotel doesn't exist you know i never thought we would get to go back to the overlook and it was just as a fan yeah it was the coolest fucking thing <laughs> it really was yeah but they made but they did make it work with the new story with the new characters you know it wasn't just mm-hmm. fan service or nostalgia like it really works with dr sleep and not just the shining you know yeah it it's unlike a lot of these quote unquote legacy sequels in a lot of ways because it doesn't feel like hey we're gonna throw in this thing that you like it's more like this is necessary to tell this story to the best of its ability and it's literally a sequel (laughs) yeah that's why i think it works so well and like everybody says about dr sleep just the, the meshing of the book kubrick's movie and just like taking things and making it like a taking things from both of those and doing it in a different way and King's to different Shining. characters. Hmm? And King's Shining as well. Taking the actual ending of The Shining and yeah, putting it into in this book. movie. Yeah, <laughs> this is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, I thought I thought you were meaning Doctor <laughs> Doctor Sleep. Oh, book. no, not the book. The bu- Shining in the book, sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's gotcha. too many different versions of everything. I know, I know. Here. I keep it all straight. <laughs> yeah, the whole boiler room uh thing i was very happy to see that because i was like ah because that's the ending of the the original book but it also goes well with um with dan's 
again with Dan's character with his arc for his his ending. Even though it was kind of sad to see him see him go, I kind of that's I that's what I figured when he yeah. went into the, when I saw him walking into the overlook. I was like, that's this is probably the last time he's ever going to go back in here. He's saying like this is the end. Mm-hmm. So that's why that bar scene hit me a little bit harder this time. Yeah, yeah. Now, as I recall in the book, Dan survives. Dan doesn't Dr. die at the, end of, of the, at the end of Doctor's Sleep, the book, I don't believe. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, so it's it's a much more sort of happy ending <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> Though I love the way that this ends with Abra telling her mom, we go on. I was, it's, it's like. Well, at first, or, not. First she says, oh, nothing's happened. I Oh, I'm, that was a lie, mom. I was talking. Yeah. I was talking to Dan. First, and like, then she's, actually listening to Dan, not hiding yeah. her shine. But yeah. in using it as he used it for comfort, you know, for her Perfectly. father, her husband who who passed away, who's oh my god, who is that um, actress? The other person whose name I can't remember playing her mom, Jocelyn Donahue. Jocelyn Donahue. Uh, her performance as uh, I kind of saw parallels, like we were kind of talking about before with um, Abra and, and her relationship to her parents. So it's kind of kind of the same as with. Danny and his parents where the mom was kind of more into it, more open to it, mm-hmm. like talking yeah. talking to Danny about Tony. And, right. And Abra's mom is kind of the same way of, you know, talking to her about certain things and like you can you can see the pain that she's she's going through like still trying to keep things normal for Abra at the end. Yeah. Um but still dinner's like ready, one, you know, just Yeah, come dinner's on ready. Down, yeah. yeah. But like her Giving her that comfort is like I think going to be the the push that she needs to be able to go on for both of them. So that's yeah. a good moment between her and her mom. It really is, and yeah. for her to just simply uh, say "I'll be right down," and then she goes over to the bathroom and sees you know the woman <laughs> from the shower, and she just closes <laughs> the door like this is no big deal. And because it's a replay of what Danny does at the beginning, right? Yeah, when they're in Florida, and yeah. he's he's learned from Dick how to put the ghost from the overlook away in those little boxes inside his mind. Yeah. But Abra has a much more defiant look on her face when she goes she to does. shut the she's door. She's much more confident in her mm-hmm. abilities um, because of what she's experienced. She feels no need to dull this gift. Yeah. And she has a guide. She still has Dan. She still has her father, even though he's not yeah. shown at the end. There's a sense that he is still with her. I love that ending. I, I think it's yeah. just like, it just perfectly buttons that ending. And to just say shine on Abra Stone is... Yeah. Like whether or not Dan ever comes back to her yeah. like Dick did for Dan or whether that's the last time she's left right. alone with it. Like she she can handle herself now. She's She's been through it and she knows how to control her power and use it for good. Yeah. And that's the most important. And she's, and you know, she's going to, you know, she's never going to be one of those people that's going to end up doing what Dan did. You know, I would hope. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like it doesn't that. Feel that. Is, it doesn't feel that it, way, you know? It doesn't feel that way at all. The message of this movie is, I think, a much more hopeful one than The Shining is. <laughs> uh, you know? And I think, okay, I love the original Shining, but I think it's true that it is a cold experience. I mean, it's yes. a chilly film. Uh, it's supposed to be though. Uh, that's yeah. Kubrick's intention. This is a much more emotional experience of a film, mm-hmm. and so uh, it sort of depends on what you're in the mood for, I guess. Uh, they're both great ways to experience the world 
um, that King and Kubrick and Flanagan have all sort of collaborated on on different times, you know, to create. You know, it's you know not necessarily working together to do that, but it's just kind of turned out that way. And so I think, boy, this is one of those movies that I just really think that, uh, and it's grown on me since the first time I saw it. Me too, absolutely. Yeah, every time I've seen it, I've liked it more. I get more out of it, I think. And I think it's a really remarkable feat. Uh, more than just being a remarkable feat, though, it's a terrific film, and it's a great yeah. way of telling this story. Uh, okay, I have a question. What do you, because I didn't really think about this too much, and I'm not really sure if it means anything or if it's just cool. What do you think about the the heartbeat? sound effect that you can hear throughout the movie well i mean that's a callback to the shining and i think that but it's effective in creating the tension yeah there's a sense of of the life of life happening you know Uh and i think that's you know why exactly the heartbeat was a decision kubrick decided to use i'm not really sure beyond (laughs) it being just a creepy sound um but for Flanagan to reuse it here, I would think it'd have maybe something a little bit different that he's trying to say. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, the way it starts with the heartbeat, I mean, it's almost like that's the heartbeat of the hotel or the heartbeat of mm-hmm. of the... Because uh, there's a sense it's a heartbeat of the, the knot, you know, because mm-hmm. you hear it most often when Rose is part of the situation. Yeah. As I recall, I could be wrong there but that's what i'm recalling because i remember it best when uh at the beginning uh in the opening scenes where it's coming down to the uh campground and the little girl violet goes and finds rose and then when she's in the flying scene that's where i remember the heartbeat Mm -hmm. best uh so it seems to have a connection to whatever evil presence sort of embodies the overlook and the true knot okay yeah (laughs) that works for me too yeah i like that it's the lifeblood of (laughs) this thing whatever it is yeah (laughs) and you know they reuse the music the particularly the uh the the dse ray the dun 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 uh the wendy carlos version of course um, oh god when that's when that started when they're driving back to the overlook and that was that's when I got excited again, you know, just another one of those moments when it's kind of the same shots of driving up the mountain yeah, and, and the you dark hear... and it's shakier. Ugh. It's, it's shakier. It's, it's more off balance. It's not a steady cam shot. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a weirdo shot uh, that I, and I like about that, how it just feels more off kilter than the one in the, in the original shining. And the fact that it's in the dark yeah. is uh, really effective. One of my ever, other favorite things too was i mean just the effects in this movie are really cool like some of my favorite stuff is um them with the true knot when they cycle and then die yeah looks so cool oh it does yeah the and oh that's another thing about them being addicts when um oh yes grandpa flick grandpa flick cycles and they just and he just sort of dissipates into steam and they all just kind of flock to it and just start sucking up the steam that's left yep. behind i mean it's almost like a feeding frenzy it's really yep. disturbing you can i mean you can just see like anytime they're doing that anytime that they're taking steam um it's i got so i don't know how i like missed this first but i just got it so much more like thinking about it like these last couple of times about they're like hardcore drug addicts in, oh, yeah. in this movie they're always looking for their next fix 
you know, mm-hmm. they need their next fix to survive when um, they're looking, they're starting to look for the the boy in Iowa, the baseball boy. Crow comes to Rose and is like, you know, we need to open a canister, you know, and she says, um, you know, we took steam six months ago, but she says, well, we'll open a canister tonight to tide everyone over. It's like they need they need that fix before they're going to have their their big fix. And then her just kind of after everybody in the knot is gone and it's just Rose and she just takes the last of those two canisters, you know, <laughs> like uh-huh. she's taking a big dose. I don't know. Yeah. Just the way they, they, they act to those scenes, especially when it's all of them, you know, feeding off of either the baseball boy or uh, grandpa flake. You can just, you can just see that, that addict in each one of them. Just, I was, I was thinking about like, what you see it in movies of people like smoking meth or something and that look mm-hmm. they get on their face. <laughs> well, I mean, even in midnight mass, when they're start craving the blood, you know, when they mm-hmm. can feel the heartbeats and the pulse in a, in a living person, you know, there's some of that and the eyes that glow. Uh-huh. There's, that was another the thing. Glowing that eyes is the same. That's right. <laughs> brought them uh, together a little bit too, though it's done a little bit differently in this than it is in, uh, mm-hmm. in, Midnight Mass. I mean, it's sort of like their whole iris sort of shines a little bit. Yeah, silver in in Midnight Mass. I love that look. Whereas here, it's just it's just like a pinprick in the middle of their pupil. It's cool. That was another cool effect um, when Abra's in the car with Crow and she's Dan is like taking over her like her eyes in that part are blue like his. Oh, uh, I missed that. uh, Oh yeah, her eyes change when she's uh, Dan. Great, because she has dark eyes. She looks so creepy in there. But yeah, I remember um, describing, actually, I don't remember it, but I was reading up on Wikipedia to kind of like remind myself what the book was like, um, that when they they take steam or when they cycle, they do do that thing where they kind of disappear, parts of themselves disappear a little bit. Yeah. So uh, yeah, just the way that the the effects work where you can see like the bones and the muscles and Mm -hmm. stuff uh, every once in a while uh, as they're cycling and uh, it looks... Just looks cool. <laughs> yeah. Then, of course, Grandpa Flick, uh, also from Gerald's Game, oh, yeah. uh, the Moonlight Man, right? He was the Moonlight Man. And I've seen that actor in many things over the years, too. He's been on Star Trek. I think he, did he play Lurch in the, oh, boy. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I, I want to say, Carol, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's Struk- Struiken, something like that. Uh, but, yeah, he was in... Um, he played Lurch in those movies. He was in Twin Peaks. That's right. He was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Witches of Eastwick, uh, Men in Black, lots of things. So he's he's just one of those actors. He's sort of he's a little bit like Michael Berryman. You just sort of recognize right. him, <laughs> you know, um, in a lot of things. It's hard to miss. <laughs> yeah. He's uh, he's terrific, though. I yeah, think he's, he's cool. I think he's uh, he's great in this. He's great in Gerald's Game and uh, all those things. So. Oh, one of the other things, too, I don't know why I wrote this down, but I just kind of like little hints of stuff like this um, is, uh, now I can't remember if this was in The Shining or not. Did Jack call him Pup? Because that comes up here a couple of times. I know it's in the book. I just kind of like, I just kind of noticed that this time around um, because the landlady says that to him Mm -hmm. and then Jack says that to him in the bar scene and then Rose says that to Abra in the hedge maze scene. Right. They all use the word Pup. Which I kind of like. <laughs> yeah, that's what I call my nephews. I call them <laughs> puppy. <laughs> oh, okay. When they were when they were younger, I used to call them puppy all the time because they're little puppies. Yeah. <laughs> it's so. also just kind of like um, 
I was thinking that Jack did call Dan that. And so that was mm-hmm. just another part of Dan's uh, being haunted by his father, you know? Yeah. And it's showing up in other characters. And, you know, the movie sets him up as being sort of a parallel to Jack uh, just by setting him in the same chair as when he's doing the interview, for mm-hmm. example, and then putting him on the staircase, putting him on the bar stool. All of those things are just like, this could, he still has the potential to, and, you know, looking through the hole in the door, you know, mm-hmm. instead of saying, totally. here's Johnny, he's just, you know, all of those things is like, this guy still has the potential to follow in Jack's footsteps. Yeah. And he ultimately doesn't. He follows in, well, Jack from the book's footsteps, uh, in, in essence, by letting Abra go free and allowing, and getting the, uh, hotel essentially to destroy itself yeah i think that's uh beautifully done so i don't know if i have a lot more to say i know i was just i feel like there's maybe a lot more like that just because there's so much movie but i think that's kind of the main topics they covered the things that i've like wanted to really cover so but if you i don't want to stop if you've got anything else not that i can think of (laughs) I mean, I don't want to miss anything, but I don't know. That's Those are kind of all the, the main things that I love about it. We don't need to have a five-hour episode. Okay. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, we're good. We're good. All right. Um, also, one of my favorite lines, I'll end on this, is Crow's line to Rose. It's like, uh, and you are the queen bitch of all time. <laughs> and she's just like, yes. <laughs> she owns I love that, that, doesn't she? <laughs> she yeah. owns it very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> love her for that. Okay. So, yeah, Great film. Uh, I hope that it continues to attract viewers over time. People really recognize what a terrific film it is. Uh, I always kind of encourage people who haven't seen it uh, to give it a try. Yeah. Because there's a lot going on here, you know. And if you, especially if you're a Flanagan fan, if you like what he does with something, you know, like Hill House or Bly Manor or uh, Midnight Mass, where you've got this horror element tied into this very human very emotionally uh grounded story then you know this is a great example of that in the in one of his films you know um so big fan for the longest time i thought that frank darabont was the only one who could really do king the way that i wanted to see him but i don't know mike flanagan's kind of edging him out i've i've Really loved all of his adaptations. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like, uh, I think there are a few, though. I think that, I think that Lewis Teague made a really good movie with uh, Cujo. Cujo's a great movie, yeah. Uh, I also think, um, and he also made Cat's Eye, which I have a soft spot <laughs> for. I'll admit soft, that I like that one a lot. But um, I guess the ones also, that have gotten to me the most have been Flanagan's. Yeah, I, the one I grew up with that really affected me was Rob Reiner's film, was Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that movie really deeply affects me. So I think Rob Reiner with his two movies, um, that and Misery, but then you've got Frank Darabont with his three, and now you got Mike Flanagan with his. And uh, I tell you what, all and and here's the thing with Flanagan. I think Flanagan sort of captures even in his own work, sort of the spirit of King yeah. as well. Because like we talked about with Midnight Mass, is this the best version of Salem's <laughs> Lot we're ever going to see? And it's like, right. maybe, you know, I mean, it's got that sort of feeling to it. It's a very King feeling piece to me. 
Midnight Mass is. Totally. So I think that, uh, yeah, but honestly, between Dr. Sleep and Gerald's game, uh, those are both home runs. Yeah. So I know he's not going to get to do a revival, but boy, that would have been cool. Um, so uh, hopefully he'll get another so cool chance that, yeah. to do another King adaptation. I, I think I'd really like to see him do that because he seems to be okay. So there's sort of like old school King and then there's sort of the new, yeah. newer King, you know, they feel like different things in a lot of ways. You know, there's coked up King and, <laughs> right <laughs> sober king you know they're, they're 80s 90s king is very different than what he's done post 2000 yeah yeah they're very different and um but they're the qualities of them are he's just interested in different things now i mean that's what happens yeah. when you get older and you are remain an artist as your craft evolves right sure. and so i think that i i i feel like king is less afraid than he used to be. I think he used to be a very, very frightened man, uh, which is why books like The Shining and The Stand, etc., speak so deeply. I think he's exploring much more humanity now in a different way. You know, he's approaching human stories. Yeah, he doesn't feel like as brutal as no, <laughs> some of his earlier brutal. work. You Though know? I got to say, the degloving scene in Gerald's game in oh, the yeah. book is is as. <laughs> cringe inducing as anything i've ever read <laughs> well yeah <laughs> and the way that flanagan puts that in the movie it has the same effect on me i mean it's just uh, like, oh yeah <laughs> uh, yeah I, so i think those three filmmakers in particular are the ones that have really captured king the best for me oh yeah on on film so. well we all know what my favorite is so yeah it's kind of tint toward flanagan <laughs> yeah, no, yeah but like uh the mist is mm-hmm. phenomenal. The Green Mile, I'm a big fan of. Shawshank, obviously. Misery. Yeah. yeah. All great movies. Yeah. I think the ones that sort of ground themselves in that real world a, 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 a bit more are the, the ones. Just the that... hint of supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's or why. Normal misery... people dealing with supernatural things mm-hmm. is always when it's better for me. Yeah. 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 I think that's why Cujo was always so scary to me mm-hmm. is because this is a it was just a dog it was dog, just a dog. Yeah. yeah Cujo still gets me I think that movie <laughs> is really effective one that I really turned around on several years ago um was Pet Cemetery. yes I always like when you think about what that that movie is really about what that book that story is mm-hmm. really about it is uh one of the most terrifying things that king has ever written which was like a tagline on the back of the book a yeah. copy that i had of of pet cemetery and i was like really that's that's not really that's terrifying like no it's fucking terrifying <laughs> and and it's so personal to king again with like yeah like the shining when you have children in your life that book <laughs> right has a much more profound impact than it does yeah. when i read it in sixth grade i was like right whatever that, that was the same for me because i read it after i mean i don't have my own kids but i have my nephews i read yeah, it again exactly. i read it again like when my nephews were the same age as the kids in the book and i was like oh okay i get this now (laughs) you know yeah again that's an extremely personal book and i think that's why he was more involved with the making of pet cemetery than he usually is he was like okay if you're gonna do this i want to see (laughs) you know (laughs) but mary lambert you know produced something that is very true to the book i mean that is yeah. That is as close to a book at a, a, an adaptation of the book as maybe King has ever gotten. <laughs> you know, I think it's, so. it's pretty tight to the book. Yeah. 
But we could talk about Stephen King, both of us, for a long time, I <laughs> we know. <could. laughs> but we're, uh, we're actually going to forego recommendations again, probably during this Flanagan discussion, just to say watch Mike Flanagan movies yeah. and series. <laughs> All right. So next time, we are going to return to our Friends Forever favorites, and we're going to have a guest on to talk about one of their favorite movies. Uh, we're going to let it be a surprise this time. And um, we're going to record a few more of these and we'll release some in that fifth, every fifth episode slot. But we're going to release some others as bonus episodes along the way, just because there are a lot of people we want to talk to. and We've already started making plans with people. So we have cool friends who actually want to come on our show. That's yeah, that's cool. Instead (laughs) of having just like five in the entire year, we thought we would uh, record some more and uh, release them a bit more often because we've been kind of I've been kind of surprised. Like a lot of people is like when when are you going to ask me to come on your show? Um, (laughs) I don't know anybody actually wanted to. (laughs) Yeah. But people are like super into talking with us uh, about their favorite movies, which, Hey, uh, we get that. Um, That's why we did it ourselves. Right. Exactly. That's why Um, we started the show in the first place. So we get it. So we look forward to those that are coming up and yeah. All right. Are we done? We're done. We're wrapping up. This one with uh, the socials. Always got to do the socials, Brian. Always got to do the socials. Let's be social. (laughs) Be social with me on Twitter at Brian D. Kuyper, if you so desire. And you can find me at Michelle N. Aiken. Follow the show at Movie Life Pod on Twitter as well. Uh, That's the only place we're set up there right now. So... Uh, Should we get an f- Instagram? Is that what you're saying? You would have to do Instagram. I don't uh, have a clue. I always forget that I even have Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> I would not keep up with it. <laughs> Just Twitter yeah. for now. Yes, Twitter. But yeah, follow us there. Talk to us. Um, give us uh, those rates and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. That would be super cool. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. And what are we going to do next time? We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. That was dumb. Bye. You always gotta do the cool guy. Bye. 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 Bye.